Well, good morning, church. Y'all doing all right? Y'all dry? Man, what a nasty morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but like, did y'all hear that, that storm last night? Like at some point, it was like, I didn't know, I thought, like, I didn't know what was going on because we saw like a big flash and I was like, was that lightning? And then it took like, it felt like five minutes and then the thunder came and it like rolled for like a minute, you know? I thought about that Garth Brooks song, you know what I'm saying? And the thunder, never mind. Uh, Never mind, never mind. But man, uh, what a great, great week. I know the students in the room are like, talk about tired. Man, we are, I, lo- I went over there for a little bit. They're eating Krispy Kreme donuts and they were glazed over themselves. You know, they're like, uh, you know. Um, but as Steve mentioned, an incredible weekend in the life of our church having over 354 students um, be involved in the Reckless Weekend. And here's why we do what we do. We, we don't have this kind of weekend. While it is fun and there's games and all kind of stuff, um, I, I knew they were having a good old time. Our oldest called me and was like, Dad, where do we get our hair cut? And I was like, what? what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm trying to, I'm checking out at Hobby Lobby because that's what good husbands do. Uh, and, and I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, we got to get a haircut. We're doing the scavenger hunt and someone's got to get a mullet. And I'm like, oh, Lord. And so... So then I was like, man, you got to get an appointment with that lady and she costs more than like go to Great Clips or something like that where it's cheap. And um, so I hung up the phone and I'm like, what in the world? So obviously, so I tell my wife Sloan and now guys, it was like, this is a total guy moment. I'm like, I don't know who's going to do that. And she's like, I, this is what Sloan said, total woman mindset. She's like, I sure hope they told their, their mom or dad and gave them permission. And I'm like, I hope so too, you know? And, and sure enough, uh, they did. So that is, that is good. But besides the fun and games that happen, man, the entire reason that our student team puts on a weekend like that is for life change to happen. And I'm so thankful that as a church, And as a dad of two middle schoolers, one coming up next year, that that we have a place for our students to hear the gospel in such a clear way and for their lives to be poured into and invested in to point them right to Jesus. And so um, I don't know the exact count, but we had several students that made decisions to follow Jesus and then follow through with baptism this morning. But I want to read you this one uh, story from a young man, um, I'm not going to tell you his name, but if you don't know this, uh, when you sign up for baptism, there's a baptism form, and we ask the question in three to five sentences, can you articulate or just put in why you want to be baptized? And so there's a whole slew of different things. It's really, really hard to kind of cram uh, what Jesus has done in three to five um, sentences, but I love what, the, what the, this took place. This was um, actually... Uh, filled out this morning, by the way, okay? Um, But this is what he says. I had always been a say-so, quote, Christian. I grew up in church, and I grew up in a good home, but I was always 50-50 with God. I had never fully surrendered. But last night and this weekend, I realized I am ready to stop living for myself And I'm ready to put my white flag in the ground and surrender my life for Christ. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's coming from a student. That's not some pastor with some seminary degree. I mean, that's a student articulating, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm surrendering. And that's what it's all about. Man, I love that. 
uh, students, I hope you get an awesome, awesome nap today. Um, and I just want to say, as a church, I, mean, I forgot to say this in the first two services, so uh, this is free. But as, as a campus, man, some of you that hosted homes, that were leaders, uh, we stepped up in a huge way. I think we had 10 host homes from this campus, which is like crazy. We had over 30-something students from this campus. And so what God is doing in uh, um, our campus specifically, but really across our church, is just amazing. So students, get some rest. Go get them for Jesus tomorrow. Um, but if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Um, whether you've been here this whole time or maybe today's your first Sunday, no worries. We're, we started a series a couple weeks ago called Sent where we are looking at the book of Acts. And uh, the gospel writer Luke, who we know is a writer of the gospel of Luke, um, wrote the book of Acts and really dictates and writes about the early church and what God is doing in and through his people. And so what we've seen so far um, is really God working. And where we're gonna land today is God uh, birthing the first Christian church. And it's, it's amazing, amazing um, story of what God has done. And so let me kind of recap Reader's Digest version. I always like to do this for those of you who might've missed. The gospel of Luke ends where Jesus obviously was uh, crucified, he was buried, and three days later um, comes back to life. He's resurrected. And over a period of about 40 days after the resurrection, he's showing up to different people, to the disciples, to a couple uh, guys walking to a city, and he's showing up to crowds and everything to prove, hey, I am who I said I am, okay? And what we see is that he charges the disciples with this incredible mission to proclaim who he is, what he's done, really the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Luke, being the same writer, when he writes the, uh, the book of Acts, he picks up that same story. It's kind of, let me kind of refresh you a little bit. And so what we see, I talked about this the first week, is he comes to the disciples and he tells them that you are going to be my witnesses. I don't know why, every time I think about that, I always say, can I get a witness? All right. And so he says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to see amazing things. And the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and, and rest in you. He's going to give you power. And so he said, but before that happens, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem. So they wait. And then what we saw last week is that the Holy Spirit comes. They've locked themselves up into this place called the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes and powers them. The power of God is resting on them. They step out. They see God is working amongst the people. And Peter, knucklehead little Peter, speaks out. He proclaims and preaches really the first Christian sermon and tells them about who Jesus is. And he, I mean, he, there's no fluff. He said, you killed him. And as he's doing that, scripture says they were cut to the heart. And so after they're cut to the heart, the crowd says, what do we do now? And what we see is those people, what scripture says, 3,000 people responded to the call of Jesus. So 3,000 people repent and are baptized. That's what Peter said, repent and be baptized. So they repent. And they're baptized, and what we see is really the birth of the early church. You know, I, I, I told the first two services, it's really upstate church Jerusalem, all right? And so, man, they laughed. Y'all are dead, I guess. Y'all are like, that's not funny. Dad joke, all right? 
But we see the birth of the early church, really a mega church, if you will, of 3,000 people. And what we're going to see is really what I've mentioned the last two weeks is that the church is not a building. It's not a facility. It is a body of believers. It's you and me, a community based on convictions of what we know, what we've seen and have experienced in Jesus. And so we see the birth of the church and what we see at the tail end of Acts chapter two, probably my most favorite scripture is, or the passage of scripture is the start of the early church, this community. So let's read this together. Uh, chapter two, verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens. Um, but let me encourage you to bring a Bible or download the Bible app, or you can follow along in our church app. But here's what it says. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the Holy Spirit enters their lives, and they begin to witness miracle upon miracle. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see is this framework really of the early church. Now, I think one of the things that is wrong with the church today, capital C Church, especially the American church, is that oftentimes we don't look at the biblical framework of what church is supposed to be. And so what I want to do just kind of in this, this, uh, the next few minutes is really look at Okay, what is this framework? And as believers, these are things that should be present in your life and my life. That if you consider yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to Christ, surrendered to him, these should be characteristics that are true of us, or at least of things that we're striving to be because uh, what we see is that they were devoted. They gave themselves, the early church, these early believers gave themselves, abandoned themselves to these things, and they did so unselfishly. It wasn't about their preferences. It wasn't about their needs being met. It was clearly a response to the gospel. They were devoted because of what Jesus had done in their lives. So if you're taking notes, here's some things. If you believe the gospel, you're a follower of Jesus, you'll do these things. They're characteristics of, our church, of what our church should be and as believers. The first one is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, what the apostles were teaching wasn't just some made-up, fluff, make-you-feel-good psychobabble. What they were teaching was the message of Jesus. They weren't just some lunatics out here saying, hey, you know, God just wants you to be happy or whatever the world says that you should be following. They were essentially teaching what they had experienced in Jesus. Now, this is what so, should be so true of, true of us. As they're teaching, they are giving pretty much their testimony. This is what God has done in us and through us. This is what we saw with our own eyes. This is what Jesus taught. 
This is the miracle that I witnessed. He is who he says he is. I saw the resurrection. I saw the blind being able to see. I saw the leper, you know, be cured of his disease. I saw the lame take up his, his mat and begin to walk. I witnessed these things. Because think about this, at this time, the New Testament, the Gospels, and the letters to Paul had not been written. And so they are going off of eyewitness testimony and the scriptures of the Old Testament. So as they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, they're saying the Old Testament is, is true, it's important. Anybody nowadays that says, well, the Old Testament's ir irrelevant, it's not true. It was important to Jesus, I think it should be important to us. And so he's teaching things. And think about this. The apostles, just as Jesus did, point back to the Old Testament because that was their Bible. That was scripture. And he's like, hey, listen, here's the creation story. Here's how sin entered into the world. He's pointing back to this amazing faith of our forefathers fathers like Abraham and Isaac. And we, we begin to see and he begins to point out wisdom literature like Proverbs and Psalms and to really speak these things. Then you look at the prophets major prophets, minor prophets to say, these are people that went ahead of us hundreds of years before Jesus and proclaimed and prophesied things that we have witnessed. Who they said Jesus was, it happened. And so all of those things the apostles are teaching and the early church is devoted on those things. It was the foundation of the early church. Now let me kind of say this as a side note. Any church that doesn't have God's word at the center, you need to run from it. Because at every church, if we are going to see lives being changed, we don't do it for social injustice purposes. We don't just do it to be the cool church. We do it because it's God's word that transforms lives. Not just a service or good works. It is God's truth. And so they devoted themselves to God's word. And if as a church, if as a believer, we're not devoted to God's word, what's the point? What's the point? Because think about this statement. If the word of God is not at the center of your life, something else is. If you're not making it a priority to spend time with Jesus and to look at truth and for God to speak, something else is. It's easy, all of us, myself included, to be consumed with other things. Let other things speak into our lives or be at the center of our lives more than the word of God. And so think about this. It is exactly teaching us who Jesus is, what he taught, and God's word is our lifeline. It teaches us, it is our nourishment. It is the standard of you and me maturing and growing. So often we teach reading God's word as we do like drive-through restaurants. I just read that, that nice little quote on Instagram. I did the verse of the day. Now listen, I'm not, trying, I'm not saying you need to be like Billy Graham it up and spend four hours in God's word. Now, if you have time for that, awesome. You're a better Christian than I am. But what I am saying is that we can't just do a flyby and say, okay, I spent time. Because quite honest, honestly, if we, if we treat God's word like a drive-through, for most of us, we spend more time in a drive-through than we do in God's word. And so we have to be careful not to have that mentality. We need to be devoted to the word of God. The, the apostles, they were devoted. It was them. Now think about this. Remember 
as Jesus was starting his ministry, he goes into the wilderness after his baptism and he's fasting and he's praying. And lo and behold, at his most vulnerable moment, who shows up? Satan. Satan shows up, begins to tempt Jesus, twist the words of God. And Jesus responds this way. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter four. Jesus answered Satan. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I don't know why anybody would wanna live on bread alone. I'm a meat guy. You with me? Can I get an amen, guys? All right. So, uh, I mean, I like my carbohydrates, but I need some meat, all right? But what Jesus is saying, he's not talking about that. He's saying what sustains my life, what is more important to me is the word of God. It is the basis of everything that I do. And how can you fight a world that twists the truth if you don't know the truth? Sometimes, uh, I'm just con confessing, there are times where I get into conversations, even as a pastor, that I'm like, man, I should probably know truth a little bit better. I should know scripture. I, I've met, to be honest, even though it's skewed and distorted, I've met Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Muslims that know their scriptures more than I know mine. And so we have to be devoted to God's word. That was what the early believers, they, they were centered around it. And God most often speaks not in rainbows and cloud formations and little coincidences that happen every now and then. He primarily speaks by his word. That's why it's called his word, duh, okay? And so here's the reality. When we are devoted to God's word, when we have more word and we spend more time in God's word, that means we spend more time listening to God's word. And as we spend more time listening to God's word, the more that we we let it transform our life and speak to us. And the more that happens, the more we grow and mature. This is, unequivocally, if they were not centered around the word of God, the early church would not be sustainable. It wouldn't. And so for us as believers, this is foundational for us to see God move and for Christianity to spread and for the gospel movement to continue. And so uh, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The second thing that we see, not only does it say that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but it said they were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to radical fellowship. Now, this fellowship is not just going out to eat after church, all right? Now, when I was in college, we called this chips, dip, and fellowship, all right? We would hit, the, hit up the Mexican restaurant after church because as a poor college student, you know what I'm talking about, man. You eat as many chips as you want. Get that Speedy Gonzalez for $4.99, get a water drink, call it a day. I, I, I had a friend, no joke, in college. His name's Mark Brown. He's a worship pastor out, out, outside of Atlanta now. He was that guy. We all have a friend like this. He'd never order anything. He would just mooch off of everybody else's plate. You have a friend like that? But this dude was like a genius. He'd be like, hey, you gonna eat that, you gonna eat that lettuce? Oh, I'll take it. Hey, you gonna eat those tomatoes? Uh, I'll, I'll take it. That, that joker would build a salad. And he would eat chi chips, water, and he'd be like, can I get some ranch? And he'd put ranch on a free meal. I'm like, man, the things you learn. And you're, you're you know, the ingenuity in college, I guess, is unheard of. But what we see in this radical fellowship is so much more than just a good old time eating at a restaurant. Now, that's important, right? I think that's cool, you know? 
Our small group's gonna have a little Super Bowl type thing this afternoon. That's great. But the fellowship here is so much deeper than just getting together and having some chips and salsa. It was intimate community. They loved each other. They cared for each other. They had each other's backs. They were doing life together. And what we see in this intimacy is a, is a couple of different things. These are kind of subpoints if you're taking notes. But the first thing that was important to them is that they met together. Whether it was a big group or a small group, it was important for them to meet together. They were in each other's homes. They were in the temple. They were together. You know, all, um, all who believed were together, right? So you see all this over and over and over. They were together in different settings, big or small. It was important for them to know each other, to see each other, to know, know their names and to have life and do life together. It took great transparency, vulnerability, all those different things. And so as they're gathered and they're, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, man, they're gathering together consistently in this. And so they met in big groups, small groups, one-on-ones, all that stuff. The second thing is that they worshiped together. They went to the temple, right, attending the temple together and breaking bread with glad and generous hearts. Now, there's a couple different references of breaking bread. There's the breaking bread in each other's, inside of each other's homes. Most scholars would say that's like having a meal, right? Some good old casseroles up in there. But the other breaking bread is they're, ta- they're partaking in communion. And so they're responding. They're worshiping together. They're doing this because it is important to them. And it wasn't like, hey, you know what? We're running late. We should go to church today. Let's go do it for an hour, and then let's go on with our, our day. Man, this was important. It was a rhythm of their life. So much so that the writer of Hebrews later on in the New Testament says, uh, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day, D, capital D, is meaning the return of Jesus. So he said, until Jesus returns, don't stop meeting together. It's important for the growth of the church. It's important for your spiritual life and my spiritual life. We need to worship together. We need to be with one another. And as a byproduct, it says we're encouraging one another all the more. Church should be a place of encouragement, right? If you leave this place and you are discouraged, I would would challenge you, come talk to me, or maybe this isn't the best church for you. This should be a place that we worship together. You're inspired and challenged in the message and reading God's word as God speaks to you. And you're like, man, you're ready to leave this place, attack Satan uh, with a water pistol and get after it, all right? It shouldn't be like, well, that was depressing. You know, I hate that. It shouldn't be, I hate this church. You know, the music, this, that, and the pastor, what's up with his hair? All, you know, he's wearing jeans. He should be wearing a suit, all right? I'll help you find another church. Not that we're perfect or that we have it all together, but this should be a place as a gathering that together we encourage one another and we see each other and we're worshiping and it's full of encouragement that it brings strength, not divisiveness. It brings unity in that. And the third thing that we see is not only are they meeting, are they worshiping 
they prayed together. It says that they were praying together. This is so important that they realized their dependency on God. So when someone was hurting, they prayed. When someone had a need, they prayed. And it wasn't like, oh, bless your little heart. I'll pray for you. And then we never do it. They prayed. They prayed for each other. I honestly think that the reason they saw such an incredible movement so fast is that they were dedicated to prayer. They were dedicated. And I know for many of us, prayer is not kind of a natural um, habit in our lives. Some of you know this story, but I didn't grow up in church. And uh, the very first time I ever prayed was on a Saturday night. Well, let me take that back. I prayed before then for I told God if he was real that he would allow the Braves to win the World Series that year, and they didn't. And, and so, but I didn't really, that wasn't very genuine, wouldn't you say, all right? And so, as a punk 14-year-old, not growing up in church, I remember on a Saturday night praying to God and genuinely talking to him for the very first time. And I said, God, I don't know what to do. But if you're real, I want to know, I want you to show me the purpose of my life. And so I went to church that day. I had been kind of going because it was fun. I go to church and the pastor gets up there and it was a little bit more traditional church, I guess, at the time. And he was like, today's message is titled The Purpose of Life. I kid you not. That's how God has a sense of humor. I was like, I'm gonna show you, Dustin. All right, you little skater punk, you know. Um, and so I'm like, okay. So I'm sitting there in that pew and the time comes after the message and, he's, and he has an invitation now, some of you grew up in church like that. We don't necessarily do this here. But he gave an invitation. He would stand right down front and awkwardly stare into everybody's eyes. You know what I'm talking about? And he's like, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come down here and talk to me. Now, I know this is hard to believe. But at 14, I was shy. I was very introverted. I didn't talk a lot. I didn't like to be in front of people. But all I know is that God got a hold of my heart. And I don't even remember the walk down the aisle to the front. I get to the pastor. I remember him. He said, what can I help you with, young man? And I said, I need Jesus. So I give my life to Jesus that day. I, I get involved in students. And some of my friends are like, hey, you should come to this thing that we do. It's a, it's a breakfast, breakfast before school. As a 14-year-old young man, I'm like, eggs, biscuits, and gravy, bacon, I'm there. I like being a Christian, okay? And so I come before school, and we all eat. And I'm like, this is great. I, I mean, you're going to do this every other Thursday? That's great. And the leader's like, all right, everybody circle up. And I'm like, uh-oh, here comes the snakes, you know? I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know what was about to happen. And they form this circle, and he's like, all right, everybody grab each other's hands. And I'm like, okay, you know? So we grab each other's hands. And the youth pastor's like, hey, um, so and so, why don't you start us in prayer and we'll just go around the circle and then why don't you end us? Have you ever been in those circumstances, okay? And I'm thinking, what, we about to pray? Oh, no way. I was like, I've never prayed out loud. Some of y'all been Christians, you know, like for like 40 plus years, you're like, I ain't praying out loud. So it starts getting closer and closer to me and my palms are sweating. I'm telling you, the poor people next to me, you know, I was like, your hands are wet, I promise you, okay? And, it, and so it kind of gets to me, and I'm like rehearsing. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Have you ever been like that? What am I going to say? I can't, I can't mess up prayer. And my grandmother at the time um, was diagnosed with cancer. So it gets to me, and like, I'm probably doing it 10 times slower, but super fast. I was like, God, help my, my grandma with cancer. Amen. All right? I'm like, next. Okay. So I'm like, man, I wish that was like horrible. All right? 
So we end, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know. So my small group leader at the time came to me, and I love this, and it really meant a lot. He said, hey, listen, just, just so you know, um, you, you, you don't have to pray. Like, you can pass. And I was like, information I could have used yesterday, you know. I'm like, you tell me that? And he's like, yeah, just don't say anything, you know. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know all this Christian lingo. I didn't know that was like the don't say anything and they'll skip you word. But he said, but I do want to challenge you with this. He said, I know you're a little uncomfortable doing that, but here's what I want you to say. Just talk to God. You don't need to be intimidated by praying. And as a 14-year-old new Christian, man, that just hit me. Because I thought, man, you got to get on your knees. You got to use all these like fancy words, you know, and, and say Lord a gazillion times in your prayer. And he was like, no, just talk to him like me and you are talking right now. Just share what's on your heart. And here's what I love about the early church. Not only were they devoted to this prayer and this time together, but think about that. In order for them to pray for each other, they really had to know one another. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There comes a certain level of vulnerability and transparency to pray for one another that in a circle and together that people are able to throw, be a safe place and throw out all their baggage, all their skeletons and say, you know what? I'm really struggling as a parent. I feel like I'm failing my kids. I don't know what to do. They're off the chain. Or to come and say, you know what? I lost my job. Not really sure what I could do. I just need some prayer. Those were the conversations that were being had in order for them to pray for each other. It wasn't a, no, I'm good, man. God's so good, better than I deserve. It was real transparent conversations. They were devoted to this radical fellowship. And let me just kind of say this on a, on a closing note. I know I'm gonna step on some toes. As I mentioned, this is the rhythm of their life. For some of us, we are more committed to Sunday sport tournaments, running errands that we didn't get a chance to run on, on the weekend or Saturday, and we're more committed to bedside Baptist than we are to one another. Now I want you to think about this. When we are like that, we struggle to connect. And when we struggle to connect, we don't make a commitment. And when we don't make a commitment, we don't have a sense of belonging. Man, step it up, make it a priority. Make it a priority for your marriage, for your family, for you and for the body of Jesus to say, this is important for me. It's important for your maturity to be together. You might say, well, we're just busy, Dustin. Join the club. <laughs> we're all busy. It's all about priorities. Third and closing, what we see, and I'm gonna go through this super fast, is that what we see is that they're devoted to sacrificial generosity. They were, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all to the, the proceeds to all who had need. Think about this. It's like, hey, Johnny's car broke down. They didn't say, well, let's go lay hands on it. They said, sell some stuff. Let's get Johnny a car. Well, not a car then. You know what I'm saying. They're like, hey, so-and-so needs help. They're, they can't provide food for their family. Hey, let's sell some things. Let's get it. Let's help each other out. Let's have each other's back. That's the kind of community that the church had. And it starts because they were sacri sacrificially generous. 
Now think about this, out of the overflow of God's grace in this moment, think about this for us. The gospel should loosen our grip on stuff and tighten our, uh, our grip on one another. Meaning, I'm gonna put you at a higher place than just materialistic stuff. And if you're struggling, I wanna help you out. That's the kind of sacrificial generosity. Not, well, this is my, my stuff. I don't want you, oftentimes it's like, oh, you, your car broke down. I'm so sorry, man, we'll pray for you. But let's step up and be generous through that because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus stepped up as a son of God and took on the form of a servant so that you and I can have life. He, he, if you will, tightened his grip on us and said, you're mine. As we sang about this morning, you belong to Jesus. And so that's what Jesus wants us to see and to understand. And as a result, because of this great devotion, this community, in verse 47, they were praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what it's about. When we're devoted this way, when we have each other's back, when we have community, like the early church, lives are changed. And I don't know about you, but I want us to grow, not just seeing people come that are from other churches. I wanna see life change. I wanna see people being added to the number daily that Lord is saving and bringing out of darkness and into life. Let's pray together. Father, what a great reminder and this framework of what our lives should look like as believers. As the birth of the early church in that moment, being devoted to your word, being devoted to one another and being devoted to this generosity that the world did not understand. And Father, let us live in such a way that you use us and we step in obedience to bring life to those who do not have it hope to those who are hopeless. And to be able to speak truth in such a way that someone walks from darkness into life. But it starts with our devotion to you. Are we devoted? So as we sing this song, let's respond. Let us check ourselves, check our hearts. What's the priority? Do we wanna see you move? And for us to take responsibility where we're weak and where we need to step up. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's respond to an incredible God that came and saved you and me and brought us together, unified us together.